1: The internet is not going away. That's why ultimately the answer really is spiritual. The answer is ultimately the self-regulation that comes from a dedication to a more integrous life.
0: Hi, I'm Mark Groves. I'm a human connection specialist and founder of Create the Love. At an early point in my life, I became obsessed with understanding relationships, the intricacies of how people connect. And through this exploration... I have created a life and a business dedicated to learning out loud and exploring how we interact with each other and the world. This podcast brings the world's top thought leaders, spiritual luminaries, physicians, scientists, researchers, best-selling authors, and health and wellness experts under one roof to discuss the good, the bad, the messy, and of course, the beautiful parts of the human experience. Welcome to the Mark Groves Podcast. I can't wait to dive in with you. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Rose Podcast. I am just enamored that I get to have Marianne Williamson, you know, I, I political activist, best-selling author, spiritual thought leader, but I'm like firecracker, fire starter, fire builder. Uh I'm so honored to have you here.
1: Thank you. So kind of you. Thank you so much.
0: And I you know I don't know that there could be I feel like every time if I ever had an opportunity to interview you before I'd be saying it's the perfect time to interview you and I really believe that in the perspective of when I think about your work in the perspective of what feels like We are more divided than ever. We seem to be um, experiencing a lot of conflict. And, you know, we're also the sickest we've ever been in a lot of ways. And I want to just sort of start off there. Like, how do we even begin to heal this divide? And, you know, I think of your book, Politics of Love, it's like, how do you even bring love into politics, you know?
1: Well, I think in order to begin healing the divide, we have to be very honest with ourselves about why it exists. This kind of division, this kind of dysfunction was almost an inevitable result of the levels of deeper societal despair that has been bred by 40, 50 years of neoliberal economic philosophy by which there has been in my country such a massive transfer of wealth and opportunity into the hands of really 1% of our people that there's been this squeezing of basically everyone else. If people live with constant economic tension and anxiety, and it becomes c- chronic year after year and decade after decade, a level of societal dysfunction that arises from that, whether it has to do with anger, whether it has to do with drug addiction, whether it has to do with sickness, should surprise no one. So I think in order to begin to heal it, like I said, we have to ask ourselves, why did this even happen? It includes this division, obviously, the threat of actual fascism. But as Franklin Roosevelt said, we won't have to worry about takeover by fascists as long as democracy delivers on its promises. Democracy has not been delivering on its promises. People are right to feel that our representative democracy is not representing them, hasn't been representing them. People in the United States ask, why is it that we don't have universal health care when they have it in Canada? They have it in all these countries in Europe. Why is it that we don't have free or at least very affordable college when they have it in all these other countries? People are waking up to the realization that we've been given the short end of the stick. The vast majority of Americans have been given the short end of the stick, but told two things. Number one, you have a good we're exceptional. This is the best place in the world. It's just people time. Like <laughs> figuring out, I don't think so. That's not my experience. And the other thing is a is a terrible ploy, a propagandistic tool uh, of distraction. The reason you're so unhappy. The reason you don't have these wonderful blessings of democracy is not because of, of these oligarchic, plutocratic corporate forces that are sucking all the money up to the top, but because of black people or because of Jews or because of uh, Muslims or because of gay people, LGBTQ, etc. So I think that if we're to begin to repair, we have to return to the basic democratic principles by which we are committed to universal opportunity which should be the bedrock of any democratic society.
0: Why do you think it is that we have such a challenging time sort of performing that audit of self, that criticism of the way things are? Because as you said, we can look around us and see the evidence, but can we call it out or call it forward or call it down or call it up or whatever the term is?
1: Our political system has been very good at gaslighting the American people. It's been very good at propaganda. This all started... Decades ago, there was an economist named uh, Buchanan, whose theory was that the most important thing of all was the primacy of property rights. Of course, you take this back to the founding of my country. This is the primacy of property rights is really at the core of slave ownership. The, the property is everything that owning property is everything and the primacy of property rights, Buchanan said, actually, that the only way to guarantee the primacy of property rights is if we put democracy in chains. And then came along the Koch brothers, Charles and David Koch, who read Buchanan's work and said, you know, we could fund that. We like that. They were radical, conservative libertarians. And they said, Oh, that primacy of property rights, we'll have to put democracy in chains. We can make that happen. We're so rich. We're multi-billionaires. We can actually we'll come up with think tanks, we'll come up with PR campaigns, we'll support candidates. And then once they got this started um 70s, by the time they got Ronald Reagan in office, they were they were off to the races. So Reagan began this orgiastic uh, trend of deregulation, uh, cutting taxes for the very rich, et cetera. Republicans started this trend in earnest, but no Democratic president has stopped it. So we're now at the point where the entire political establishment is under the thrall and uh, within a chokehold of these corporatist forces, these crony capitalist corporatist forces. The American people, you know, are, have been sold this Bill of goods for so long. But I think that there is an awakening going on. You and I were talking before we came on about how actually, right now, you sense a moment of possibility and opportunity. You can't fool all of the people all of the time. And I think people are beginning to realize mommy and daddy are both crazy. You know, it's like kids in the house and this or NAA, you know, uh, your life is unmanageable. You know, for a long time, There was this idea, you know, could the right service best, could the left service best? And now this realization, the entire system is so rigged that the status quo is itself inadequate to the task of writing this ship that they have pushed over to one side so radically. Uh, The status quo will not disrupt itself and the people are going to have to stage an intervention.
0: My experience, at least as a Canadian, you know, sort of throughout my life leaning more on what would have been thought to be left is currently I'm observing leaders point to the other side as being the cause or the evil or the this or the that. And I was just thinking about this today that there, what I haven't observed in politics is the ability to criticize one's own language for division, one's own language. Like there's almost like this toxicity that's presenting as altruism, you know, or this toxicity, maybe that's not the right word, but this division that's being created and then it's presenting as righteousness. And I'm wondering, like, how does, because it seems to me like the one side is that we have to be able to call out the way that things are, the systems aren't working, and then the other side being that uh, we have to be able to do an audit on the way things are, and how do we change them? Like, how do we propose an intervention? What seems like we don't have a lot of power, like, as a voter, maybe it seems that way, and I'm obviously projecting all my own thoughts, so I'm curious what you think.
1: What you're referring to is nonviolent political philosophy. Gandhi said the end is inherent in the means. He was saying what you just said. If we are so divided in our own hearts and in our own language, how can we be conduits of repair? Uh, The way Martin Luther King put it was self-purification must precede direct political action. The first place we have to remove The horror and remove the imperialism, as it were, and remove the domination and remove the intolerance is in our own hearts. So, what you're saying, you know, if you look at the 20th century, the two uh, greatest political revolutions of the 20th century were the nonviolent revolutions by which India uh, threw off the yoke of British colonialism and the civil rights movement in the United States. So, I agree with you entirely. We have to look at ourselves and you have to find that sweet spot where you're not eating the truth. You're willing to tell truth to power, but without personally demonizing. And it takes some training, you know, uh, and some emotional and intellectual discipline to be able to do that.
0: Yeah, because if you look, pay attention to a lot of the online conversations, they're pointing fingers at the other party, but not like, how do we solve this? How do we come together? I, this division, this illusion of separateness that is really Ah, it's it's getting amplified, but I think I feel what you were saying earlier, the possibility is in the recognition that that's not working. Like It's going to have to collapse. And I think of the correlation of that division and how it shows up in our families and how it shows up in our communities and how it shows up in our relationships.
1: The issue of the inevitability of collapse is very significant because the question becomes, is, a, is it a violent or a nonviolent collapse? And I think that the mob is closer to the gates of the Bastille than many of the elite seem to realize. I don't know why, because that mob already had a rehearsal run, already had a you know, dry run at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Nonviolent politics, a nonviolent revolution begins with exactly what you were saying. The first we have to look at ourselves. First, we have to realize where we ourselves have a shadow side. Every movement has a shadow, just like every person has a shadow. And the left has its own shadow, self-righteousness, lack of tolerance for people who don't agree with us, um, projection of blame onto other people no matter what, failure to try to understand those people who simply do not agree with us. Uh, There's a particular shadow on the left where... You start blaming and deriding and trying to cancel even people who do agree with you, but there's one little issue that they don't see completely eye to eye, you know, off with your head. And also, as you're referring to online, Twitter, social media exacerbates all that. So a lot of emotional self-discipline is necessary in order to be a nonviolent activist.
0: How do we get there? How do we get there?
1: You know, you say, how do we get there? But I don't think you really mean that because... You, just from your conversation, it's clear that you know how we get there. It's done on an individual level. It's done through prayer. It's done through meditation. It's done through mindfulness. Done through a commitment to forgiveness. It's done through a commitment of self awareness. I'm going to look in the mirror. I'm not going to make it about the other person. What was my part in this? Um, only as the Course of Miracles says, only what you are not giving can be lacking in any situation. So when you say, "How do we get there?" I think we get there in the ways that we've all been talking about for a lot of decades now. If we We bring it into politics, uh, which is how do you see yourself as an instrument of love? How do you see yourself and become, with conviction and dedication, an instrument of peace? Now, what you said before was even to look at things that way is almost antithetical to politics. I I would submit to you it shouldn't be antithetical to politics. Politics is simply the container for our collective behavior. So if right action, integrity, mercy, compassion, justice, and humility should be our dedication as individuals, then it needs to be our dedication within the political sphere. There have been enough people who have demonstrated this. Gandhi demonstrated this. King demonstrated this. And others, this idea that it's antithetical to politics. No, it's not antithetical to politics. It's de- It's antithetical to today's establishment politics. But that's why we have to recreate the field. And for those of us who are into higher consciousness and, um, you know, personal growth and all of that, every field we have touched, we have transformed. Medicine, healing, education, even sciences, the whole system, holistic, integrated perspective, transforms every system it enters. And the only reason we haven't transformed politics yet is because we haven't gone there. So you begin a new conversation. You know, uh, Werner Erhard said, you can live your life one of two ways. You can live it out of circumstances, or you live it out of a vision. And the new politics begins with a new vision. And it's no different than everything else that we've all been talking about and studying for the last few decades, applied to the larger sphere, which is what politics is.
0: Do we do this from within the system or disrupting the system and asking for a change of it?
1: I'm big on both and. I think most people are today. It it is a whole systems breakdown. There has to be a whole systems approach. And I also believe that every individual is guided to the sort of dharma, to the piece that they can best play. Electoral politics, however, I think, is a kind of collective assignment. You're assigned to a podcast, for instance. Somebody else is assigned to the labor movement. Somebody else is assigned uh, to writing a book or independent media. But I think, I personally believe that electoral politics cannot be left out of the formulation, even while we work on things on the outside as well. In the United States, the big question is, do you work within the two major political parties or do you work outside, and I think that has to be a very individual. there is no inherent objective right answer. So once again, and, and if you going back to nonviolent political philosophy, Gandhi said that the leader of the Indian independence movement was the small still voice within. So all of us have to follow that small still voice within. Run or don't run, run as a Democrat, run as third party, and each of us are assigned. Just like the cells in the body are assigned, you're assigned to Canada. I'm assigned to the United States. Somebody else is assigned to to Europe. Somebody else is assigned to Africa. We all have to think of ourselves now as the immune cells in a very wounded body of human civilization. And just like the cells in the body are assigned to where they need to go, so are we when we listen to the guidance of our natural intelligence. When the cell goes to where it is led to go, it is then at its state of highest actualization, in a collaborative relationship with other cells in order to serve the healing of the organ or the organism of which they're a part. And that's what's happening now. You and me doing this podcast together. It couldn't happen if it was only one of us. For that reason, I think you and I agree, it's also a very exciting time because you feel this activation of the immune system and you feel the yearning that so many of us have to be part of the healing and to be part of the repair.
0: Look, I like to get my greens on the go. I don't want to compromise on quality. I want to get organic. I want non-GMO. I want all the things. And my favorite product from Organifi will never cease to be the green juice. And now they have a green apple flavor, which kicks ass. I think I can say that. But it kicks ass. It's so good. And it's so easy. You just take a glass of water, take a scoop of green juice, or you take the travel packs. They're great to travel with. You open it up, you put it in the water, you mix it, and then bam, you've got a green juice. Without the mess, without all that stuff, and you're getting all the nutrients that all these superfoods that are in the green juice provide. So go check it out. Go to Organifi.com the love and you save 20% at checkout. So that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot create the love. and they have tons of amazing products. So go check it out and go save 20%. I love that. And you're so right. That analogy of the body really shows what collaboration can create in terms of that same holistic look.
1: Not only that, when a cell, for whatever reason, disconnects from its natural intelligence, forgets its collaborative function, goes off to do its own thing, that's cancer. And that is a malignancy, not only in the body, it's a malignancy in consciousness. And that is the problem with the human race. Human, The human race has been infected, with a malignant consciousness, the very thought that it's all about me. The human body cannot survive when its cells say, it's all about me. I don't want to serve the healthy functioning of the lungs. I don't want to serve the healthy function of the pan- pancreas. I'm going to go off and do my own thing. <laughs> oh, really? And you're going to bring other cells around you who are as dysfunctional as you? That's a tumor, and it sucks the life force out of the system. And in my country, that's how rugged individualism has transitioned into rugged narcissism. And it is sucking the life force out of my country.
0: That seems to have been fed to by social media, like amplified, you know, that level of self-grandiosity, especially that we can hit like buttons and, and increase that, not to mention, you know, I think a lot about how, Obviously, there's very beautiful things about the internet. It's facilitated this introduction, this conversation. And like anything that's expansive in a shadow, you were speaking about the shadow before, there's a shadow aspect of it. And I really, I consider so much how, one, we feel the social strain of the need to belong, the need to be celebrated, all that stuff that, like, we can't take any criticism now. You know, we seem to have a low capacity for disagreement. And one thing that I find um, peculiar, and I don't know how we got here. I'm curious to hear your thoughts because I also wonder, do we need to know the pathology to move into the direction of healing? But the thought that, like, it seems that we have such a low capacity for discourse and, and disagreement, and that's leading to us not, seeing that there's intelligence in all perspectives, there's intelligence in all this, but because we seem to be stuck in this sort of narcissistic belief that my way is the right way or my view is the right way, we're not seeing all this. And I don't know how we got here. And again, I'm not sure, do you think we need to know the pathology to, to move towards solutions?
1: Well, I agree with you. Social media is what made the whole thing blow up. I know in, in my country, you know, it's not like we never had racists, bigots, anti-Semites, homophobes. <laughs> of course they were there, but it was kind of like a herpes. Uh, if it's in your bloodstream, you're not getting it out of your bloodstream, but your hope is for it to remain asymptomatic. So we thought we had built levees. Uh, we thought that no major political party would ever give a megaphone to such crazy voices as that. For a while, that seemed to hold. But then we had a combination of two very dangerous elements number 1 the way social media allows anyone a platform plus a very malignant narcissistic political figure who was not above stoking and harnessing those forces for his own political purposes at that point the levees fell and now people can say things that are so outrageous that you know it's like i remember um Hearing Sasha Baron Cohen saying, "If Hitler were alive today, he would be taking out 30-second ads on Facebook." There's no healthy shame in the public sphere, and of course, the blowback against that has been cancel culture, which brings its own problems with it. Of course, what we need is to get back to a um, an ethical center within our own hearts. So then, the question becomes: Well, did the breakdown of the ethical center within our own hearts then create? this shamelessness in the public sphere, or did the shamelessness in the public sphere create this lack of ethics in our own hearts and in our own behavior? And I think it's both. It's both and. However, I also think in response to your actual question, which is, do we have to understand the pathology? Not really. You know, you can't analyze the darkness to get to the light. In the presence of light, darkness is gone. And in the presence of love, Fear is gone. Love is to fear what um, light is to darkness. So a radical commitment to love one another really is the ultimate answer. It's that which says, "Don't put that tweet up. It's kind of mean. Don't find it. Find another way to write that email that's a little bit more respectful." That kind of honing of our attitudinal muscles—it's kind of yoga of consciousness—as you, as we go through those changes in our own being we become different political and social activists than we would otherwise be because we are not willing to forego our commitment to righteousness in order to try to make political change. Many times what people used to say is, well, the means is justified. The end justifies the means. But what Gandhi said is that the end is inherent in the means. If we don't become more peaceful people, if we don't become more loving people, then we will not be able to help in any meaningful, fundamental way, create a more peaceful world.
0: That's beautiful. I think of my experience in the last two or three years, just being exposed to, one, the conversations online, being part of them, experiencing cancel culture, experiencing reactivity, also experiencing my response to political divide or what I feel like are unfair policies or whatever it might be, that I found at first my anger was doing exactly what you're saying. I would post something that wasn't, Explicitly harmful, but it was implicitly harmful. Like the energy that I was posting something about, like let's say, for example, I, re- I just remember this cartoon with like a kid on the lap of uh, his dad and the saying, like, "Oh, how do we get to tyranny?" or so. It was something like that, and the dad saying, "Oh, well, it's when we fall asleep." And no, and it, it was condescending in its approach. It wasn't helpful. What I really, I was angry. I remember I had a friend point out that a lot of the th- when I get into that state, I'm creating the very division I'm trying to heal.
1: Me too. Snarky Marianne, sarcastic Marianne, I got condescending him. Marianne. I got him. I mean, you know, we all, we're not perfect enlightened masters yet. And of course the problem, I think you mentioned the word before, reactivity. If you meditate in the morning the chances of your writing that snarky email are drastically decreased because the anger is really just the expression of the stress that we're all feeling. I mean, nobody has any impulse control these days. My mother used to say, count to 10 before you say anything, but my mother was alive before there was texting. Texting and Twitter just is such a temptation to express your immediate impulse, no matter how fear-based, dark, or angry it is, Um, and we know how those algorithms work. I mean, they're all set up on social media to hook us into that space. So I think that's why there's a big conversation about detaching from that grid. On the other hand, look at you and me right now. This wouldn't be happening if we didn't have these capabilities.
0: I think a lot about the social media platforms and how since they monetize our attention, and they, in a lot of ways, depending how we interact with them, and I've certainly experienced this myself, is that we unconsciously often start to curate our content then to maybe either create enragement, that's not my style, or create more engagement. But then what I've been thinking a lot about is because it's being extracted through us for profit, we actually become conduits of extraction if we're not mindful, because there's literally like thousands, I would imagine, or at least hundreds of behavioral experts who are adjusting these algorithms, like we almost have to say, like, put the thing down, step away. Like, what do you recommend for that?
1: Well, I think every individual has to make their own their own choices, but you're absolutely right. People realize that it's the freaking matrix. You know, it's that, that movie, uh, it was a social conundrum, what was it called? A social
0: Dilemma. Yeah,
1: yeah. social dilemma. I think all of us have come to see, I've seen that myself, Marion, you're addicted to this thing, put it down. We all know that we're hooked and we also know the ways, and like you said, there's positive, first of all, there, there are positive results of the fact that we have those tablets. And more than that, they're not going away. The internet is not going away. That's why ultimately the answer really is spiritual. The answer is ultimately the self-regulation that comes from a dedication to a more integrous life.
0: What composes then a more integrous life?
1: Well, I think there's one truth. It's spoken in many different ways, uh, different religious philosophies, spiritual philosophies, some of them uh, more doctrinaire, some of them secular. Um, I'm a student of A Course in Miracles. It's doesn't have a monopoly on truth no system has a monopoly the course is a psychological training in the relinquishment of a thought system based on fear and a substituting that thought system with a th- thought system based on love. I'm a Jewish woman, I do transcendental meditation, and I do A Course in Miracles. None of those three are any better than any other path. Some people do Kabbalah, some people do uh, Buddhism, some people do mystical Christianity, whatever. But people are understanding there is a spiritual yearning. Even a lot of people who left behind institutionalized religious um, entities Then came to realize, wait a minute, I threw away the baby with the bathwater. I didn't mean to be throwing away God. I just meant to be throwing away institutional doctrine and dogma. So there's a great hunger now, a great practice, and people are beginning to understand. So this is what I know in my own life. When I wake up in the morning and I do my lesson from the workbook of A Course in Miracles, I have a different nervous system that day then I would have had I not done that. It's just like physical exercise. Just like with physical exercise, you're honing your physical muscles so you can move through the world most powerfully. With spiritual exercise, you're honing your attitudinal muscles in order to achieve the capacity to be still and non-reactive. There is an internal guidance system within all of us, that small, still voice of God, of love, of whatever. But the ego speaks loudest. The ego speaks first. The voices of fear dominate the world and dominate popular culture and dominate social media. In The Course in Miracles, it says, if you will even take five minutes in the morning with spirit as you understand spirit. This will be in charge of your thought forms throughout the day. Blaise Pascal, the late French philosopher, said, every problem in the world derives from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. If I have done my exercises in the morning, also you blast with love wherever you're going before you get there. you If you're doing a podcast, bless that podcast host with love before you get online. Because what that's doing is saying, I am programming my subconscious mind to meet him at the place where we are one. You learn these tools before you walk into the room, before you walk into the day, before you walk into the business meeting. Blast everybody with, there with love before you go in. It's a command to your central nervous system and people subconsciously know everything. People feel the energy that you bring with you into any situation. So these are the kinds of tools that are Mainstreamed now. You know, if, if if somebody's listening right now, some people are listening right now and going, Yeah, I'm doing that every day and she's right, it really makes a difference. Some people are saying, Yeah, she's right, I've tried that some and I really should do it more often because when I do it, it works. Some people might be saying, I'm open to that, but I don't know where to begin. And to that person, I say, just say that in your heart, and books will literally fall at your feet over the next few days. There are so many books. There are so many classes. There are so many ways now to find your way in to that deeper inquiry of how to bring love and spirit and a higher power into your life at a deeper level. It's really very simple. Life is complicated. Truth is very simple. Do you bless the person you're thinking about and being with right now? Are you blessing them or are you blaming them? Are you judging them or are you being a space where they themselves might show up more fully? Are you bringing negativity and selfishness and self-reference and victimization into the field of whatever encounter you're in? Or are you fully present, trying to be gracious, kind, and filled with integrity? You know, we, we make it in a way more complicated than it is. Which you, it's like you were saying, when, you, when we're snarky on the internet, well, we downloaded snark, but that's not who we are and who we really are wasn't uncreated in that moment. And we can train ourselves to download more and more often so that it becomes the rule rather than the exception, the person that we want to be in this world, because we know that that's the way to create a life that works.
0: Do you think that state of love, that practice, you know, I think of Christ consciousness, I think of whatever the word someone might have. Do you think that can coexist with the consumption of the news or the consumption of the more amplification or the amplifying versions of Twitter and participating in those types of conversations?
1: Do your five minutes of prayer, meditation, and mindfulness before you pick up the newspaper. If you go directly, if you wake up in the morning and you go directly for Twitter, Snapchat, the news, Instagram, etc., you are downloading the consciousness of stress and fear that dominates the world. If you do that, it's very difficult to get back to any other place. So then there's no reason to be amazed that you're depressed by noon. But if you, and you know, every every religious system I've ever read about emphasizes the power of the morning, because the morning is when your mind is most open to new impressions. If you download the good news, You download the ultimate reality of things before love is real. Everything else is an illusion. I am a a child of God. I am an idea in the mind of God. I'm only here to give love. You ground yourself emotionally and psychologically in that space. Then by the time you read the newspaper, you're only there to see how you might serve. Mm. The world is giving you its prayer list.
0: That's powerful
1: then you look at it very different. And also your mind will pick out what you need to read and what is unnecessary.
0: I think of the three people that you mentioned, I'm for sure the second. Like I've practiced those things. I've practiced different versions, but I haven't done the Course in Miracles in a while. And I can say that when I did it every morning, I got into this state, which now I look forward to getting back into because I feel like once you have awareness of something that's good for you and returns you to love, you have an obligation to the integrity of restoring yourself to that state. And I woke up and after I would practice that, I would go through the day in one way, looking at everyone through the eyes of that wholeness, that unlimited, infinite. And the other side is I would actually be an, uh, expect miracles. I would like actively expect, it made me orient my, and I'm saying this with the awareness that I haven't been, cause you said the thing about Instagram first thing in the morning and my soul was like, you've been doing that. And I'm like, oh yeah, I know. Okay. We'll get to that. And I'm sure everyone listening to there's a few who felt called out by that. But that state of of actually just being in bliss, like being, even when you're surrounded by all of that, it's such a different, it's incredible.
1: In the course it says, you learn to cultivate this time of peace, but it's not just so that, You can escape the chaos of the world. It's so that you can yourself become a transformer of the chaos of the world. So you learn to cultivate that space of peace. Then when you go out into the world, you're carrying it with you. And that's what makes you a healer of the world. And that goes back to what we were talking about before, the assignment You will not only go out into the world, you will go out into the world with a deeper clarity where you should go, what you should do, what you should say and to whom. Then you're living life from a whole different construct of identity, as in who I am, really. Am I just this physical self or am I something beyond this physical self? And a different sense of your mission and your purpose on this earth. Is my purpose just to go make money or do whatever the world tells me it's about? Or is my purpose just to be an extension of love in whatever form that ministry might occur? It's like two different parallel universes. The point is, one causes happiness and one causes suffering.
0: Which one do you want?
1: Well... You know, look how often we go for the one that causes suffering because we're addicted to it. It's a perverse comfort zone. I mean, you just said when I did it, I was so blissful and then I stopped doing it. You just said it. It's very sly, isn't it? It's like, why I stop?
0: It's so true because I know that there are certain practices that I do that when I do them, I'm bulletproof.
1: It's like physical exercise. If you do it, it works.
0: Yeah, and you know, as I process what you're saying, I think that often I let it slip because it gives me the excuse to be snarky. It allows me to participate on a level where I can snap back at someone who snapped at me. And I couldn't do that if I was reading A Course in Miracles in the morning. I'd be like, oh, snap back, it would be like a love back. It wouldn't be a clap back, you know? You'd be like, I love you anyway. I love you anyway.
1: You know, if you actually deconstruct that, The ego is very sly. I don't think, from a metaphysical perspective, I don't think your ego and what was working in your subconscious mind was telling you, let's not do this so I can be snarky today it's too smart for that. You wouldn't necessarily buy that. It's your own intelligence used against you. It was really more like, I'm good. I got to go to work.
0: Yeah. It's like, I don't need these practices. I'm there.
1: I don't need it now. I really, I'm really glad I got it, but you know, things are good and I have to, um, I really have to get to the office or whatever it is. And you, you know what I'm saying? It's the silver tongue. You know, it's, it's, it's your self-hatred posing as your self-love. So I don't think it would say to someone like you, let's not do this because then we'll be snarky today. It would just say, oh, it's really nice to do that. You know what? I just don't have time today.
0: There's more of that hustle culture sort of infiltrating the need to be present.
1: Oh, whatever it is to make you think, I'm good. I got, you know, when you go to the to the gym, you never get to go to the point where I like how I look. I don't have to do this anymore. <laughs> right? Right. It's maintenance forever.
0: I've tried that. It doesn't work.
1: Right, exactly. After a certain age, for sure. If you're not keeping those muscles up, they're headed down. There's attitudinal gravity, just like there is um, physical gravity. And that's the gravity of anger, the gravity of snarkiness, the gravity of reactivity, the gravity of despair, the gravity of cynicism, the gravity of victimization. And it dominates the world. That's the thought system that dominates the world. So if we're not actively and proactively, you know, it's like repetitions, you know, with the weight. That's what what spiritual exercise is. It's, it's, it's an analogy. It's a perfect analogy. It's training your inner self. And sometimes the excuses why we don't do it are very similar too. And another thing that's very similar about it is when you're doing it, you're enjoying it. You know, if you're actually working out every day, or if you're actually meditating every day, you actually enjoy it. But if you stop, it's just unbelievable the excuses we give ourselves. It's like a
0: different way of being, a different state of being. It, you really are a product of those rituals, of those habits. In you know, collectively, those weren't formally rituals or habits that we were taught. At least, you know, I could say in the Western world, in my schooling. And one thing that you said that really resonated for me, and I found this challenging when I first discovered your work, was the use of the word God. And when you said that, a lot of people have thrown out the baby with the bathwater. I did that. I went to Catholic school. I grew up going to Catholic school. I didn't experience unconditional love from Catholic school. I actually felt a lot of judgment. I felt I had to leave the religion or I'd leave myself. Like that's the way I felt. When I was a teenager, I watched them bring a young couple in the class who had gotten pregnant and basically teach us that if you have sex before marriage, you'll have to be these kids coming to talk to us. It was was awful. I just knew in my heart that that was awful. I knew in my heart that that wasn't love and that wasn't a religion I wanted to participate in. But what it ended up making me do is throw, like I completely rejected the idea of God. I rejected, but then I found this gap in myself, this spiritual connection, which really was, I really felt lost because I became, okay, I'm gonna at 27 get married. I'm gonna have a job that makes me a good provider. I became the material performances of my life. And I felt what I didn't know at the time, but I look back and I see I was very spiritually disconnected. And When I started to discover your work through a rock bottom, through all that stuff that brings us to the teachers, as you said, the books will land on your feet and they did and your videos. I remember your weekly lectures. The word God came as the word universe first for me. And that made it this, it's kind of bypassed my, my pain and it made sense to something that I didn't know how to make sense of. And so I was curious because I feel like that's a, an experience a lot of people have with religion and I'm curious. Yeah, if you could speak more to that.
1: Absolutely. Uh, You know, I grew up, I'm, I'm Jewish. I didn't grow up in a home where God was associated with anything other than living a good life of humility and mercy and humbly, walk humbly with your God, do justice, love mercy. And then when I started reading The Course in Miracles, first of all, I didn't have a problem with the word God. But also, I, that was where I first encountered in a non-academic setting these Christian terms. Now, if you read the Course in Miracles, you see this is not the Christian religion. These words are used in non, in, in very psychotherapeutic ways. However, when I first saw these terms, including Jesus, I found something really interesting because I thought that my Christian friends, I thought, oh, wow, this is so cool. This must be what they all sit around and talk about, but they just don't talk about it like when I'm in the room because I'm Jewish, so they're being polite. And I thought, no, that's not it. I was taught, we just don't read that book, honey. We read the other one. So I didn't have any preconceived notions around these words. My Christian friends for the reasons that you just said, had a much harder time. It was like, oh, right? And so it brings up whatever your resistance is, but the Course in Miracles, while it recognizes that resistance, it does not coddle them. So um, everybody comes at it their own way. And of course, when it comes to the Course in Miracles, for some people, that teaching, because it doesn't have a monopoly on truth, for some people, the teaching comes to them in a way that simply doesn't use those words, and that's okay too. God Himself would not want the word God to get in the way of your understanding. God has no ego. There's a line about Jesus in the Course that is particularly powerful related to what you're saying. It says some bitter idols have been made of him who came only to be brother to the world. So yeah, religion has organized religion has done a number. There is no doubt about it. And people's rejection of the malfeasance of so much institutional dogma and doctrine uh, in the Christian religion and in other religions is understandable. But I also think we're living at a time where people are, like you said, and like, as happened with you, I threw away with the baby with the bathwater. In fact, the last book I wrote, it hasn't been published yet, but the last book I wrote is called The Mystic Jesus, A Psychology of Faith. And it's the first book I've written where the publisher came to me And the publisher, Harper, is the biggest publisher of Bibles. And they said the biggest denomination is now the word they use to describe it is none, N-O-N-E. It's just like in politics. I don't want any of the institutional choices that have already been provided me, but I want something and a great interest in Jesus that people want to know about Jesus, but they want to know about Jesus independent of the Christian religion. So I was delighted to write the book because of course, for me, as a course a miracle student and also as a Jew, my relationship to Jesus is very independent of the Christian religion. The Christian religion has no monopoly on Jesus. So a lot of people who they don't want to, they don't want the Christian stuff, but who is this Jesus person? Uh, there's a lot of hunger for that for good reason. It
0: feels like it's all part of a similar thing, you know, that There's sort of the colonization of the mind, the colonization. I just think of all the extraction that we do from the earth. And it feels like if you return to this space of having a sacred relationship with oneself, these practices that you're talking about, which will, of course, create a sacred relationship with the other. Because if you see yourself with grace, with reverence, then how can you not see someone else with the same? You know, how can you not see the earth?
1: And the opposite is true as well. If I see you with grace, how can I not begin to be kinder to myself? Because ultimately we are one another. You know, that's the the line, there is only one begotten son. The traditional Christian takes that to mean Jesus is the one begotten son and no one and nothing else. If you look at it through the filter of books like The Course in Miracles, there is only one begotten son means we're all it. There's actually no place where you stop and I start We're like sunbeams thinking we're separate to other sunbeams. We're like waves in the ocean thinking we're separate from other waves. The Course in Miracles defines enlightenment as a shift in self-perception from body identification to spirit identification. If I identify only with my body, you're over there and I'm over here. But if I identify with my spirit, there's no place where you stop and I start. So how I treat you is how I'm treating myself. The Course says, ultimately, generosity becomes an act of self-interest. So if I salute the love in you, if I'm willing to acknowledge the innocence in you that lies beyond whatever mistakes you have made, then and only then am I able to recognize that that innocence lies within me as well. But if I'm seeing guilt in you and focusing on your guilt, I cannot but focus on guilt within me. The Course in Miracles says, an idea doesn't leave its source. So when I'm angry at you and and projecting blame onto you, I will have about 15 minutes of relief from my own existential pain, but then it will boomerang right back at me because it actually can't leave my own mind. If you're guilty, I'm going to feel that I'm guilty.
0: Do you think this is at the core of the political divide then? Like the thing I'm afraid of in you is representing a fear in me. Like I really find myself feeling a bit politically homeless in Canada lately. Like there's not a party that really represents how I feel, at least in a large part. And when I sort of sit in the middle or at least try to sit in the middle, I'm like, it feels like one side is... Afraid, especially right now, just considering the pandemic, one side's afraid of dying and the other side's afraid of losing freedom and they're just both afraid, and they both think the other is the cause or going to be the source of why what their greatest fear is going to occur and I feel like there's intelligence in both perceptions. it's almost like individualism can be healthy in the context of relationship, but relationship also needs collectivism, it needs community like, like I think there's this idea that it's romantic to lose ourselves. And then if we've lost ourselves and realize we don't have a self anymore, we believe that we can never lose ourselves. And do you know what I mean? Like there's, then there's an absence of communion.
1: The democratic ideal in countries like yours and mine is the idea of individual liberty that is balanced with a concern for the common good. You can do whatever you want. You can be whoever you want, but not if you hurt somebody else. You know that that's the, that's freedom within an ethical context. Now, from a Course in Miracles perspective, the ego is the false belief that you're separate. So, anything I do to cast dispersions on anyone else keeps me thinking I'm separate from them. So, if you're closer to success, it'll be fear of success. If you're closer to failure, it'll be fear of failure. If it's they're different from you. Religiously, the ego will make it about religion. If they're different from you politically, it'll make it about political. What's really relevant though is not the specifics of why, but the fact that there is that part in our mind that is vigilant in its, in its commitment to casting other people out of our heart.
0: That's powerful. That we're committed to difference.
1: We're committed. That's exactly right. We're committed to difference. And that's where, yeah, we're committed. That's Perfect way to say it. We're committed to difference. And if you realize, if you see yourself as spirit and all spirit is one, there is no difference between us. If we're black, white, brown, Jew, Christian, Hindu, Muslim, man, woman, fluid, left, right, that's not the deepest identity. The deepest identity is the realization of our oneness. And when you ground yourself in that realization and try to cultivate that, realization. Then when you go back into the constructs about differences, you come from a naturally more merciful, tolerant, understanding place where the differences are negative, but something quite beautiful like the flowers in a garden. And we can, you know, free society is not where we all agree with each other about everything, but we can come to the point of realizing there's a kind of yin and yang in healthy debate, None of us have a monopoly on truth. I see that online also. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes on Twitter, people are just so cruel. And then sometimes people are like, well, Marianne, respectfully, you've got that fact wrong. And they're like, thank you. But then I learned. I mean, there are people who use it for respectful conversation. And that's kind of exciting on, online.
0: That feels like an alternative reality on Twitter sometimes.
1: Now, well, you know, I've seen it. I've experienced it.
0: Why is it that we're afraid of sort of melting into or surrendering into that unity or into that? Because when I think about collapsing the binary, there is a part of me, like I know that work's important and I conceptually go, I'm a, but there's a part of me that goes, but I don't, it's like I don't want to give in or it's I don't want to absolve them or I don't know, it's like a righteousness in there. I don't, I can't quite name it.
1: Well, from A Course in Miracles perspective, the ego is the belief that I'm separate. In any given moment that I surrender that belief in our, in separation between us, that is the death of the ego. So the ego is seeking to preserve itself. No, don't go there. It's dangerous because it is dangerous to the ego. So the ego doesn't want it. So the ego says, no. And the ego will say things like, that's very codependent of you. not necessarily codependent. Maybe you just love that person. Now, what we find when we do allow ourselves to melt into love for one another is that you don't lose yourself. You find yourself you actually become a healthier person. You're just as able to set boundaries. You just set them without stomping your feet. You can set them with a, no, I won't be doing that, rather than a, no, you know? And uh, you actually become wiser and clearer. You know, there's this idea that the ego wants us to have, that if you, it's the Course says, you think without the ego, all would be chaos, but I tell you, without the ego, all would be love. The ego wants us to think, that if we surrender to love, we're going to like lose brain cells and we'll be taken advantage of No, right? And we'll be asked to sacrifice. No, we're being taken advantage of now because we're, we're rattled and we're not at one with ourselves.
0: That's a powerful perspective shift. We think we're going to lose something, but we're, we're losing.
1: We're losing now. You're like a wave in the ocean thinking you're separate from other waves. If I think of myself as one separate wave in the ocean, I live in constant terror. What a horrible psychological state. I'm living in constant terror that a wave that is bigger than me will come, overwhelm, and annihilate me in any moment. If, on the other hand, I realize there's no place where I stop, another way to start, then I feel like, hey, me, the ocean. Ocean moves, I move. I move, the ocean moves. Hey, I get to be the ocean.
0: I like that. You're yes. still a wave, <laughs> yeah.
1: but you've got a huge power base that you're part of. It doesn't make you weaker. It makes you stronger.
0: The ego does not want to let that go, though.
1: No, because that's the death of the ego.
0: Yeah. That's the death of the narcissistic culture. That's the death of the self. That's the death of the ideology that protects us from the fear of collective consciousness. Mm, All delicious. What happens if we don't? Like, what happens if we don't answer this call? And I feel like we're always being invited, but it feels... Like it's becoming an urgent invitation.
1: Uh, Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah,
0: you think? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I was trying to put that sadly. Because
1: we are the Titanic headed for the iceberg. And the iceberg could be nuclear. It could be biochemical. um, It could be weather catastrophe. Humanity is on a collision course with itself. So you're right. It is urgent because never has there been in history the threat, for instance, of nuclear annihilation. So the fact that we're feeling an urgency is the good thing. The body can take a lot of assault and injury as long as there is a healthy immune system. It's when the immune system is weak that there's a problem. So the fact that the everybody's on alert, everybody gets this, this is, means the activation of the immune system. It's like the environmentalists say, well, you know, the earth's going to be okay. But if we continue to act the way we've been acting, it just might have to throw off this predatory species for two hundred and three hundred thousand 300,000 years. The problem with that is the immeasurable amount of suffering, human and other species suffering that would occur were we to allow that to happen. So on, it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning. On one hand, it's a horrifying moment. On the other hand, it's so bad, things just might flip to good because there's this awakening of people. It's very... You have to be really adult, not adult, adult, to be in denial about what is going on now or pretending to yourself that the same neoliberal um, economics-based, you've mentioned extraction several times, uh, you mentioned decolonization. I mean, people are getting the status quo is unsurvivable and the status quo will not disrupt itself. So now the question is, how do we create the evolutionary mutation? The species is behaving in a way that is so maladaptive. We are now at that place where species get to where they will either change or they'll go extinct. And it's a collective now evolutionary shift, and it's about a critical mass of people, which I believe exists, all over the world. This, this, this awakening is not happening in any one particular geographical region, country, ethnic group. If you think about it, there are millions of people all over the world basically having the same conversation you and I are having right now. In their own way, from a spiritual perspective, the crucifixion is followed by the resurrection. The enslavement of the Israelites in Egypt was followed ultimately by deliverance to the promised land. That symbolic three days... That symbolic 40 years means the time it takes for the, for the change to occur on a material plane that emanated from the fact that while in the fear-based slave condition, crucifixion condition, we changed our mind. What's up to us is how long is it going to take? Is it going to take three days? Is it going to take three years? Is it going to take three centuries? Is it going to take 3,000 years? That's the part that's up to us. And, um, I think our task is to all perform to the best of our ability that Moses function. And that's what I think is the arch- That's the archetype that, that all of us are, are seeking in our own hearts and seeking to live to the best of our ability. Remember, the Israelites weren't happy with him when he said, okay, he said we could go. Come on. We got to go quick. They were like, what? What are you talking about? There are no roads out in that desert. Where are we? What promised land? You know, don't expect to be uh celebrated immediately for uh, recommending that we leave that slave condition. But I think more and more people are realizing our only survivable option is to make a run for it. And uh, if we all make a run for it together, we're going to create the miraculous breakthroughs that we're looking for.
0: I feel like that siren is apropos to what you're saying. <laughs> when we're making this transition, I find that a lot of what we're waiting for is for someone else to do it first. Like you go first, you prove it first, you demonstrate, you put the arms down first. You, I found when you were running politically, it felt like a lot of the world was ready for your message, but it didn't feel like the media was ready to let the world hear your message, you know?
1: No, 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 no. The mainstream media is definitely tied up, you know, at the behest of the the current um, neoliberal order. I mean, look, it's the corporatization of the media. It's all owned by a few, few corporations, even that number one, a lot of people have started to figure that out. Number two, there's the rise in independent media. I think in the future, especially with younger generations, what the mainstream media has to say is going to be less significant. Uh, Although I think Twitter certainly is part of it, but I think even people online are beginning to figure some things out in certain places. You don't need a majority. The majority didn't wake up one day and say, let's free the slaves. The majority didn't wake up one day and say, let's give women the right to vote. The social change doesn't happen because the majority wakes up and gets it. Social change happens because enough people, a few people, that critical mass, stand up for a better idea. And the arc of history begins to bend in that direction just like with the evolution of a species, that hundredth monkey. So don't worry about whether or not other people agree with you. And don't worry how many people agree with you. The the change will not come from the horizontal level. The change comes from the vertical level. Stand on what you and your heart know to be true. And also, I think when you were saying we're looking for other people, I think people are looking for other people to demonstrate, but also people feel like I don't know. I don't know where to go. I don't Mm -hmm. know what to do. That's why meditation is important. That's why prayer and mindfulness are important. Because the more you do practice that stillness, the more you can discern what is correct for you, where you could best go, be used, what to say. And also in that space, you are given, as it were, the strength and the power to be able to go there do what it is and say what
0: it is. Well, if you can go there individually and personally, I think of the act of revolution with self, but then also how revolutionary that is for your relationships. Whether it's romantic or any of your relationships, you now have this contagious, you know, viral experience of now it just trickling out and out and out. All that gets better is our life. Like our life literally gets better. And I think when we start to That's why I love the context of romantic relationship, because it is such a magnifying glass to, like, we seem to almost be triggered enough that we're willing to work through the things that we haven't been willing to face before. But I also recognize the mirror that is how we interface
1: with everything. I think that's the purpose of relationships, that it brings up, you know, that's, we grow An emotional, psychological detox is like a physical detox. It has to come up in order to be released. You have to see your stuff. It brings, you know, the people, love brings up everything unlike itself, right? So it's around the people that we love the most that we find ourselves behaving in ways that we're most ashamed of sometimes. And if we are fortunate enough to be with someone who knows that their practice in that moment is compassion, non-judgment, mercy, and forgiveness, then we got some chance of growth here. And I think that's what's happening on the planet. The species is coming face to face with our own destructiveness, our lack of responsibility, our lack of reverence, our extractive behavior. Uh, we extract not only fossil fuels from the ground, we extract the life force from everything. Um so it's all coming up for review. The world itself, the human civilization is going through this detox. We must or we won't make it to the other side. That's the karmic grace period is over.
0: Well, Marianne, I feel like I could probably talk to you for hours and hours and hours. And I do want to have another conversation about relationships specifically. I think this one was really important and I got I, I know the people listening will have gotten so much from it. Um first off, I want to say thank you.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you. I so appreciate it. And you're right. The romantic relationship conversation is, um, it's a big one. They're all big. They're all important, but thank you for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: Of course. Of course. And um, i curious for the people listening, where can they find more of you? And we'll make sure we link it all out.
1: Thank you. Well, certainly I'm on Twitter at Mar Williamson and on Instagram, and I'm on Facebook and people can learn about different classes and all of that, uh, at Marianne.com.
0: Perfect. All right, sweet. Well, thank you so much for your time, for your generosity and all the things. I appreciate you.
1: Thank you. It was lovely meeting you.
0: Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast. So you don't miss any more, leave a five-star review on Apple podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love.